Hello, everybody, and welcome to Watch Party Gaming. This is your host, Siobhan, and as always, I am joined by my panel. Say hello, panel. Hello, hello. panel. Hello. Panel. For today's show, we have Axel. Hello. Say hi, DW. Hello, my precious. <laughs> Greg, not David. Hello, dear. David, not Greg. You're a space hippie. <laughs> Why, thank you for noticing. <laughs> and today we have a special guest on our panel. Say hi, Sam. Hi. Hi, Sam. So I have to say that this is the episode so far that has the most of what I would call biological humor. So, Sam, you may be saddled with being the most mature person on the panel today. (laughs) (laughs) So we start off the episode with um, Aziraphale driving through the fog as he returns back to London. And he asks the Bentley to play something modern, some swing, but no bebop. (laughs) Call back season one. (laughs) Yep. Every time he calls popular music bebop, Greg, you might remember this. There's a long mm-hmm. John Baldry song where he talks about boogie woogie. <laughs> what is this? He gets he gets pulled in front of a, a judge for busking and disturbing the peace, and the judge is like, "What is this? What is this boogie woogie?" <laughs> and I think of this every time I hear Aziraphale say bebop. Yeah, bebop was very divisive at the time. Uh, it's very arrhythmical, atonal. Uh, to unsophisticated ears, uh, or you know, people who weren't, you know, already in that in that jazz headspace. So yeah, it's it's interesting that after all of the evolution of humanity that Xerophil has witnessed, bebop is where he draws the line. You you, <laughs> you have to stay in key, stay on the beat, stay in key. Some of that is just around what you're used to like i know when i first started hearing music that was based on non-western scales it sounded very discordant to me but you mm-hmm. develop an ear for it over time yeah so to be fair bebop hasn't been around as long as aziraphale has true um so he's driving through the fog he passes a hitchhiker he's like oh no i'm running late i can't stop and then he passes another hitchhiker and he start going okay this is a little weird and then the third hitchhiker is standing right in the middle of the road so he has to slam on the brakes she gets into the car and turns into shacks so we have this conversation with with shacks where she introduces herself so apparently crowley hasn't told aziraphale about his much about his replacement because he doesn't recognize her, doesn't know her name, mm-hmm. and when she introduces herself, she says, "I." Uh, she specifically mentions that she is the representative on this corner of the planet, so that confirms that there's more than one hell agent out there, and that they've kind of sectioned up the world. Yeah, she's in charge of England, poor thing. Yeah, they don't really leave England. They don't really leave London much. So they're yeah, that that's their sector. Yeah, it could be. So Shaq um, has this conversation with Aziraphale where she's trying to get him to admit that Crowley has Gabriel. And he's first of all says, I don't know what you're talking about. And why would Gabriel go to Crowley? Gabriel hates Crowley. Gabriel, this man, I don't know who he is. <laughs> yes. And then he finally finishes off with Gabriel, who I don't, who I've never heard of. Aziraphale is such a bad liar. But so are they... Because, like, Shax, for example, it was, was specifically saying, ah, you've told us. How have I told you? Ah, you didn't, but you did now. No, no information was actually revealed. 
Like, even the fact that we caught you was a lie. And she just assumes that that was the truth because she's just as bad. I don't know. I think that was actually really clever of her because when she's talking to Crowley, she says, Beelzebub knows that Gabriel's in the shop. And Crowley says, Beelzebub can't know that because it's not true. Oh, no, I believe that the trick is clever. I'm with DW, though, that she just assumes that she's gotten the correct answer, even though she didn't really get the correct answer, because he just gave gave her the exact same answer that she's been getting the whole time. So she makes that leap and assumption at the end. There's no actual absolutes there. True. I guess guess my feeling on it is that while I know she has it now set in her head, Crowley, or sorry, Crowley nor Zarephel have actually told her any information. She just hasn't gotten anything that has completely disproved her, and therefore she must be right. I think she just really wants to attack somebody. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that is valid. That is However this played out, she was yeah. going to say she had proof. Yes. Demon's going to demon. Demon's going to demon. I also thought it was interesting that she says, I heard you were an item like 17 years ago. And it's like, <laughs> bitch, where have you been? <laughs> been going on for centuries. Stuck in admissions. That's where she's been. <laughs> well, they were yeah. keeping it on the DL. They didn't even change their um, demon book profile to say in a relationship <laughs> until about 17 years ago. <laughs> Peeled off Facebook. <laughs> I like that. It's very uh, Hellraiser. (laughs) So she gets out of the car. um, Zerfell drives away. We get to the credits. So I've been watching the credits each episode, and each thing that they go through shows up in the The, credits in order. So this particular part of the credits shows them on stage together. Mm -hmm. Zerfell and his magician. And and the Blitz. And the Blitz, yes. Yep. So it's interesting. The next part is them going into hell. So I'm wondering what's going to happen there. We shall see. You know, the, uh, the the giant barrel of pickled herring at the beginning. I was like, what is this? We finally got that last episode. <laughs> That's uh, not yep. pickled so herring. So confused. <laughs> so after the credits, we go back to the Blitz. London, 1941. And they reuse a bunch of shots from season one where Crowley drops the bomb on the church. Um, complete with, you know, the romantic violins scene. Then we jump to hell, and uh, we see Shax back when she was in processing, and we meet Furfur for the first time. Furfur. Furfur. What a demon name. It took me a long time to realize that was a name. <laughs> so apparently the voiceover that is saying, you know, we'd apologize for the delays, but we're, we're not, not going, going to. to. So that is the same actor who did the Terry Pratchett voice in the for the BBC in season nice. one. So it is Terry Pratchett who welcomes you to hell <laughs> in this universe. <laughs> Appropriate. But from a distance, which makes it even more fitting. Not personally. <laughs> I also like the water cooler. <laughs> the fire cooler? <laughs> the sign on the wall, too. It's It's been zero days since someone has said uh, the road to hell is paved by good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> There, there's other ones in there uh, that that are on X-ray. They've got the actual uh, the actual posters. There's a hell posters gallery on Amazon X-ray. Uh, things like "Do not lick the walls." We hate you, and heaven yeah. looks down <laughs> on you because you are pathetic. <laughs> All on brand. It. I mean, their their yes. PR department is really on point. Oh, that's so, HR. So that's not even PR. The hellish resources. Neil Gaiman has said that he had to, like, convince the design department to make these posters. <laughs> He's 
it's like you have to forget everything you've ever learned about design. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just make we it want as bad as ugly, possible. garish, you know, comic sans. Every font you can think of. But in that same vein, where I've often said like it takes a brilliant actor to play really, really dumb, it takes a really good designer to make something look garish. This is true. On purpose. This is true. Yeah. You got you got to fight instincts to do that. It's like no clean. It's got to be clean. No. <laughs> We're going for absolute chaos. So Shax offers to help Furfur. I find it weird that Furfur would go for it. I mean, he's basically trusting another demon. Although I guess it is kind of a deal. He says like once I'm in a position of power, I'll help you. Well, and I feel like that's the only way promotions happen in this realm. Yeah. There have to be deals struck and you have to, you know, scratch the right back. It's the worst case scenario of corporate world. If hell has a Facebook, do they have a LinkedIn too? Oh, of course. No, it's oh. the actual LinkedIn. <laughs> actual LinkedIn is hell's LinkedIn. Yes. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I kind of do wonder, rather than going for the job herself, Shaq's kind of like threw Furfur out there as kind of a test case to see if he could get away with it. Mm-hmm. Either way, she wins. If he fails... She is next in line to get the job. And if he succeeds, then she's got a friend in a high place. Total guinea yep. pig. Total guinea pig. Mm-hmm. So we get a very quick scene of Crowley and Zerfield driving through London, which is on fire. Did just get a bunch of bombs dropped on it. And then there's that. And he stops at the back door of a theater in the West End. And there's a little shot of that, that comes up in the x-rays of nuns playing table tennis. And they are from the Chattering Order of St. Beryl. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I have it up over here. You can see it right next to, right, right as they're entering the stage door, there are some uh, some ladies out there sharing a drink and a smoke. And uh, yep, there's nuns playing ping pong. I actually had to go look this up in the book. There's a little thing in the book about the nuns of St. Beryl that part of their their um, order was you have to be talking constantly. They were allowed to take an hour off on Thursdays where they could be quiet, and they usually went and played table tennis. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. You would think in that order that absolute silence is probably maddening. So just not being making the noise yourself and letting the Paul do it is probably. <laughs> there you go. That's that's why they're in a pub, right? So then we go back to hell, and the Nazis are complaining about how they're not supposed to be here. The plot was supposed to work. (laughs) Oh, it did. It did. And it's all down to Crowley interfering. You get a look at Furfur's tongue when he licks the pencil. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Everything. uh, Um, So there's one thing that's worth mention. I think it's worth mentioning here is that um, the actors that play Furfur. And two of the Nazis were all in the sketch comedy series League of Gentlemen. And oh, really? the script for this minisode is written by one of the writers of League of Gentlemen. Oh, that's awesome. Crossover episode. Yeah. <laughs> that would explain why it feels a little different than some of the other episodes. Yeah. One of the things interesting, all the mini- minisodes are written by somebody else. Yes. Like, they are a discrete thing. And the other thing, too, is that one of the Nazis, Mr. Harmony, is Mark Gattis, who you may recognize from being in a whole bunch of things, but in in, in part of our series tradition, um, he has written nine episodes of Doctor Who and appeared in three of them. Mm. Ah. And he was in Game of Thrones as well. Yes. Was he really? Mm Mm-hmm. And Hitchhiker's Guide and Shaun of the Dead. Oh, yeah. He's right up our alley. Yeah. 
Mark Gattis is one of those people who is in kind of all the things. He he did look very familiar. So we're having on the, him on the podcast when? <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I noticed about the scenes in Hell is they really have kind of gotten away from the animal aspects. With Hester and Ligger, it was very obvious. With Beelzebub still has her flies. Mm-hmm. But most of the others, they don't have things on their heads anymore. I mean, Furfur's got the, the tongue, so he's obviously some kind of reptile. But I still can't figure out what... Yeah, what shacks? She what has shacks the teeth. She's got very sharp teeth, yeah. I was originally thinking bird, but now I'm wondering if she's some kind of nasty fish or something. Or bat. Because of the teeth. Something interesting about the teeth is, like, not only are they really sharp, but, like, they're unorganized. Like, they're just kind of... It looks like they were just, like, shoved in there. Maybe she's a shark. And they're, like, overlapping. Mm -hmm. So... Sharks have multiple rolls of teeth. So, like, as a tooth drops out, a new one moves forward, and they tend to get that very raggedy appearance. So maybe she's a shark. Mm, Land shark. Land shark. (laughs) Candy grams. Uh, so somewhere along the line, Furfa had managed to get some really good uh, PR on Earth because in the Lesser Key of Solomon, Furfa is a powerful great Earl of Hell, the ruler of 26 legions of demons. Damn. Nice. He does go around telling everybody he's important. <laughs> <laughs> he causes love between a man and a woman, creates storms, tempests, thunder, lightning, and teaches on secret and divine things. And he is typically depicted as a deer or winged deer. Hmm. With a forked tongue. Well. <laughs> All those deer that you see with those forked tongues. <laughs> <laughs> and this is off of uh, Discworld? That's from, like, the real world. Yeah. Oh, okay. The Lesser Key of Solomon. Um, oh, okay, okay. Books of, of, of traditional demonology. Gotcha. Interesting. So he's been going around bigging himself up. <laughs> Clearly, Yes. Better he finally gets his promotion later and they forget his uh, blunder. Can I just also bring up, Shax is the 44th spirit of the Goetia. He is a great marquee or duke and appears as a stock dove and speaks with a hoarse, subtle voice. And his office is to take away the sight, hearing and understanding of any man or woman uh, at the command of uh, of his summoner. He can steal money out of king's houses and carry it again in 1,200 years and fetch horses or many things at the command of the summoner. See, I actually believe that about Shax as opposed to Furfur. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And Shax commands 30 legions of demons. All directed at a bookshop. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. (laughs) So next we pop over to the theater where Mrs. Henderson is giving Crowley a royal bollocking. And Crowley's just taking it. He's just, like, standing there, like, going, oh, yeah, broke the whiskey. Well, I did park next to a spot where a bomb went off. I mean, a, a, a normal human would be scared of this woman. Yes. <laughs> you know, a demon yeah, definitely sure. is. <laughs> the demon's just kind of, okay, well, whatever. But, yeah, this, this woman would terrify a normal human. I, I'm pretty sure I've worked with her. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you see, the way that theater directors work, they're either, like, your favorite person that you've ever met, or you hate them. True. This, so, this, this is true. This is Very, true. very true. And running a theater through the Blitz has to take that kind of, that level of person, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. This is not someone who suffers fools gladly. It turns out that her magician has been arrested. For deserting. For deserting. I, love that. <laughs> I was waiting for a disappearing joke in there. I was waiting for yeah. it. <laughs> he was there in the lineup, then he wasn't. 
because Zerafel is so delighted by this news. Well, it so happens. <laughs> this is obviously news to Crowley. Crowley's just staring at him, and Zerafel does this little dance of the seven veils. It's <laughs> just like hilarious. Starts waving his handkerchief around. Flailing his handkerchief around. Like that's supposed to be a magic act, just waving a handkerchief around. <laughs> he's so delighted by the opportunity. I think that he's trying to show off to Crowley a little bit, too, in that moment. Mm-hmm. He's, like, really happy that he got the chance to, like, flaunt his talents. When Azurfa loves something, he's just all out. You cannot suppress his enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. But then he hides the fact that he's good at it the whole time. See, that's the weird part. Well, is, but, well, he is an angel, so he's kind of supposed to be humble. I don't think that he is good at it. I think that he's just like the stakes were so high. He's very enthusiastic. Yeah. So then we go back to hell, where Furfur offers the zombie deal to the Nazis. What I think is hilarious about that, he starts talking about Crowley, and then he he says his you know he was obviously working with this fellow guy who, from your description, is obviously an angel. The only description they gave of Azurafel was that one of them said, you know, that he was very obviously gay. <laughs> <laughs> so all angels are, apparently. Well, if, you know, he's that much of a pansy. He's got to be an angel. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed something this episode that I've never noticed before, but it's been there all along. And you folks, I know there are episodes I missed. You may have talked about this already. But did anyone catch the fact that he goes by Mr. Fell, a fallen angel? I've seen A.Z. Fell. I just assumed it was a riff on his name. I think it is. I don't think it's an Aziraphale, like, choice. I think it's an author choice that he's going by Mr. Fell. He's been going by that for, you know, for a long time. The bookshop has always been, you know, A.Z. Fell. Agreed. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a, a like, something Aziraphale chose. I'm saying this as a writing concept. You know when you know when writers name somebody something that they find clever. The fact that Mr. Freeze, his name was already Victor Freeze, like it was yeah. it was like fate that his name. The fact that Azarafail goes by Mr. Fell is in that line. It's a clever yeah, but, turn of phrase by the author. Yeah, it's kind of been there from the beginning. It could be his choice though, because I mean we've talked about his guilt from the beginning with the sword like that may be part of his guilt is that he wasn't one of the ones who got chosen to fall and so that's part of him saying yeah i'm not so much well he he didn't really fall angel. he was in heaven's good graces until armageddon you know until the the end of the first book so he he's still not fallen he's just out of out of grace but but maybe he can't understand why you know, because yeah. he's done so That's many things yeah. of guns against heaven's rules. Apparently not God's rules, but against heaven's rules. Right. So there is a fan theory that AZ Fell stands for Azurafel Zerafel Fell. And that <laughs> 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 and, and and Crowley's full name is Anthony J. Crowley. So the theory is it's Anthony Janthony Crowley. And they're just like they're just so bad <laughs> at being humans <laughs> that even their names are disasters. <laughs> Furfur explaining the plan to the Nazis. I have recently qualified as an authorized miracle blocker, and he pops up this little card, and it's a punch card. You punch, <laughs> you punch a hole in it, <laughs> and it blocks miracles for like an hour. <laughs> Block five miracles, and the sixth one's free. 
Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like a train punch card, but yeah, Subway is even better. The the technology is hilarious. Like so he's got this very elaborate period appropriate camera, but it rolls out a Polaroid at the bottom when you take the picture. So, yeah. Polaroids were invented that. like two years later. Right. Were they really? <laughs> In yeah. the forties? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So hell was actually ahead of the curve. Yeah. Or how much of our technology comes from hell. Mm. Some of it still belongs there, in my opinion. A lot of social media, I'm sure, does. Kodak invented it, but they didn't think it was going to be big, so they sat on it and didn't patent it, and then someone else came out with it and made it big. Yeah, it was a, 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 a guy named Land who worked with Kodak, uh, who came up with it. They passed on it, so he started Polaroid. Mm-hmm. They originally called huh. the, the Polaroid land camera. If Kodak right. came up with it, Axel, can you look up if Kodak was a demon? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Kodak, demon, but maybe. Eastman sure was. <laughs> gave us Linda. Hey, what? Linda Eastman. Linda oh, McCarthy. I did not know that. Yes, I she's, know that she's of the Eastman okay. family, of the Kodak huh. Eastman family. Oh, so, okay. That's why she started out as a photographer. Family business. Axel has learned a thing today. Yeah. On a very special podcast today. (laughs) (laughs) Axel learns a lesson. Well, I don't know about a lesson, but... He learns a a thing, thing. and that doesn't happen very often when you're in a a panel with Axel. Furfur presents the Nazis with their alternative to working for him as zombies on Earth. And you get to see this very bizarre video of a Nazi who's been turned into a fly and gets eaten by a spider and then digested (laughs) and pooped out. And there's this whole x-ray thing about... I mean, to me, it just looks like a cartoon. To me, it doesn't look Mm -hmm. like anything. But there's actually um, an x-ray that explains how they created this effect with spaghetti and salsa and anchovies and dropped them from a great height and did 3D rendering. (laughs) And I got to read the words pulsating anus (laughs) 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 on a scene description, (laughs) which I can honestly say it's never done before. (laughs) Well, we've talked before about how everything in hell is like, deteriorating like the pipes don't work and so it fits that their um video monitoring system would be a piece of junk that you have to like turn the dials to to get to that focus point and actually get to <laughs> what you're looking at and for okay i have two things so first of all i want to say that that whole like spider thing looked kind of like the same vibe as like the sandman comics which i ah. thought was really interesting and then I also want to say that I find it strange that hell is punishing bad behavior because that seems like something that heaven would do, but hell is punishing them for them. So I just well, see like a loophole a little bit. You can't well, do bad things because no matter what, you'll get punished. Well, technically, uh, heaven's punishment for bad things is hell. Yeah, so. it's to send you there. Yeah, they don't let you in, and they send you to the bad place. And hell just hates hell just hates humans. Yeah. So for them, this is like a a fun thing to think up nasty things to do. Like, to you. It could be because we've never we haven't established why there was a war in heaven, and it could be 
that the reason for the war in heaven was that some angels hated the fact that God had created humans with free will and like the, were the new favorites and they rebelled against him. And so the core of their rebellion is hatred of humans and wanting to punish them. So they'll take all the humans they can get and mess with them as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So like is uh, Beelzebub's assistant a human or is that a demon that she loves to torture? Yeah, yeah the, the one with the eye patch. I assume that 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 that, that they are uh, a demon, um, because demons also love to t- like they also love to torture everybody and cause pain and hurt, like that's their thing. I I would also go with demon just because of the response to Shacks and the amount of attitude that he is able to carry that I don't think a human would get away with when he's like, yeah, state true. your business now, state your business. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I wish I could get a recording of the squee that came out of the animation department when the project came across their desk to animate that spider eating the Nazi and pooping him out and reconstituting it. Like, the giggles <laughs> no and, and excitement that must have happened by that department. Mm-hmm. You think that's a dream yeah. project, is it? I, I, I'd say so. It'll be visible for two, 10 seconds. I don't care. <laughs> My whole life has been leading up to this. <laughs> So they sign, obviously. They're like, all right. I, I especially me. liked the, well, for how long would that be happening? Uh, let me look up here. Uh, um, um, eternity. Right. <laughs> then we zip uh, to back to Earth where um, there's some guy singing songs about a fart. I want to hear the rest of that song. <laughs> As you do. You kind of do because the, after oh, he that's... eats the brains, you get the end of the song. That's true. That's true. And the three Nazis come climbing up out of the rubble. Nazi zombies. Why did it have to be Nazi zombies? Wasn't there, like, a video game that had some extra scenes where you, uh, like, the video game was a first-person shooter where you were fighting Nazis, but then there was these extra scenes where you got I'm to fight Nazis. I'm pretty sure there are Nazi zombies in, in, in at least one of the Castle Wolfensteins. Yeah. yeah a lot of settled. games have add-ons where they turn all of the stuff into zombies, so I'm sure there's a first-person shooter that has Nazis in it where... The add-on is zombie version. Yeah, I remember an early one where we were hunting zombie deer called Redneck Rampage. So yeah, I <laughs> I would not doubt zombie Nazis in Wolfenstein. So there's a couple of places in this specific episode. I always have the the um, captions turned on because especially in the Scottish episode, sometimes I'm having trouble <laughs> with what's going on. <laughs> I hear much better when. Captions are on myself, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's one scene where they they look at the guy who's singing, and the woman says, "I guess that's dinner." <laughs> and this, the caption said something completely different. It was like something like he has oxygen. At least. He yeah. has oxygen or mm-hmm. something. Uh, like so that. Neil has commented on this um, in season one. He reviewed all of the subtitles before they went out. Um, in this one, obviously, he can't because he's on strike. Um, and there is a hypothesis that um, Amazon may be saving, trying to save themselves money by using um, a large language model like ChatGPT to do the subtitles. Um, mm-hmm. And as a result, they're going to be garbage. I really only noticed it in this episode, and there's a couple of places where I wondered if they had done it deliberately to clean up the dialogue. The scene where they've eaten the guy 
and there's this joke. Mr. Glozier finishes part of the song and says, sorry, Mm -hmm. he's repeating on me. The captions actually clean up the lyrics a little bit. And I was wondering if it was done intentionally, because if you listen, what he's singing Mm -hmm. is rude. (laughs) That could go both ways, right? Because... It could have been an intentional cleaning up, but also autocorrect tends to auto-clean things up too, right? Yeah, that's true. So then they go shambling down the street. It's I found this kind of interesting, the three of them shuffling along, because you see in the background, people are like picking through rubble, and there's obviously some people who are injured. There's one guy who looks like he might like be huddled in a corner crying and i'm like they actually don't look out of place mm-hmm. <laughs> the city just got bombed everything's on fire people are injured three zombies covered in gore Swirling and dumpling you know, around moving like their mm-hmm. bodies are falling apart don't look out of place they're not getting any attention whatsoever and that's on top of the general london not paying attention like ignoring anything that's not in your immediate sphere too yeah i think even in london walking down the street covered in splattered blood yeah brains would get yeah, my my guess is we're going to see them in in subsequent episodes, and that's when they'll look highly out of place. Is they're going to be in the modern times? The reoccurring they last that long. They're already. I, kind of I was kind of hoping to see them later in the episode, or like just one with like only one arm left, <laughs> like, yeah. hanging out in the park somewhere, yeah. playing ping pong with the nun, <laughs> <laughs> and losing badly. Well, it's not his dominant hand that left. That's true. And I think also the reflex time would tend to deteriorate, so. I'm having flashbacks to the whole Black Knight scene where he's in the arms. Come back, you pansy! All right, I'll I've had worse. So they go shuffling off to the bookshop and start peering in through the window. There's this, there's this interesting little scene where Crowley thanks Azurafel for stepping in as a magician and... Azirafel says, well, that's what friends are for. And he kind of stops this whole night when, you know, they went through the whole scene with the bombing in the church is the first time they saw each other after their fight in Mm -hmm. St. James Park. They haven't seen each other for, what, 80 years or something by this point? So he kind of hesitates. Are we friends? Are we still friends? (laughs) Yeah, there there was uh, earlier an earlier episode where they were talking, uh, Azirafel mentioned all these dates including 1941 so these are the things that have been uh mentioned earlier we don't get to see the apology dance yes yes reminded me that he's supposed to have done the apology dance this is true don't get to see it i'm very sad necessarily what he's apologizing for because i don't know that um getting caught by the nazis is necessarily worthy of an apology dance so it may be something else that happens later in 1941 but... i i think that whole magic show you ruined crowley's <laughs> reputation as a booker on the west end <laughs> <laughs> well uh, that, i i find it interesting that crowley like keeps egging him on at this point <laughs> because i think he really wants to see this failure of a magic show happen oh yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, he doesn't he, he doesn't quite know it's going to be a failure. Well, yet. Oh, I think he knows. Because um, he can he can do well, miracles. The interesting I mean, aspect of he also doesn't even know. I sat there watching, trying to see if he was purposefully not volunteering 
or was like just unaware of this is the time he was supposed to volunteer because he seems completely I think nonplussed about yeah. it. He's just like, oh, oh, yeah, sure, sure, why not? Yeah, is this the time that now you're going to give me a gun? Great. <laughs> Obviously, he doesn't go to the theater right. much <laughs> and has never fired it's a gun. Not his thing. <laughs> yes. Well, also, you when we get to the scene, you'll see it. it his the question was, "Have yeah, you ever handled anybody gun experience yeah, with yeah, firearms?" Everybody in the audience, yeah. soldier, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Crowley doesn't because he hasn't. So I think it's not so much that he wasn't responding to his cue; he maybe didn't realize that was supposed to be his cue. So while they're still in the shop, Aziraphale goes running off and finds this book of magic written by Professor Hoffman, and it's signed to a wonderful student. So obviously this is not referring to his magic trick abilities. And I just kind of wonder if like, it's one of those, everybody loves Azurafil because he's an angel. Like the whole thing that happened with the guys in the graveyard where he fixed his phone, like Azurafil's just so lovely that everybody loves him. He's a wonderful student because like, he always brought like cake and you know, he, he, he helped out. And and yes, he wasn't, it doesn't say a good student. He also student. does not say like my I, star pupil or anything like that. Right. I, I'm yeah. also wondering if it's one of those uh, inappropriate teacher student relationships. Uh, it doesn't seem like he would get involved with a human like that but well I, there was that whole time with the the, the dancing club learning the kavat mm. and the discreet gentleman yeah but i don't club, think he was so. involved in, with any of them he just enjoyed their company that's fair like hanging out with them inappropriate can mean flirting too could be could be i don't know but he seems a little too innocent for for even flirting with a human you know but I love how uh, the magician signed it, the Hoff. So here's yes. here, so that has there always been a the Hoff? No, it's proof that he, uh, Hasselhoff will find time travel abilities in the future and has gone back in time to teach Azerfail magic. That's all canon for that. And learned how learned how to do magic. Also. Well, that was part of the magic was learning how to travel through time. Was, that was like the final class of Hoff becoming the great magician Hoff. I also want to point out. Crowley's absolutely dreadful American accent <laughs> scene <laughs> he's, when he's egging Aziraphale on and he's pretending to be a GI. <laughs> I know David Tennant can do American accents. <laughs> can also do terrible ones, apparently. Yeah. So it's David Tennant doing Crowley's version of an American accent and not <laughs> David Tennant's version of an American accent. It's a guy pretending to be a guy pretending to be a guy. So I think at this point, he's just encouraging Aziraphale because he's like, we're committed now. We have to come up with something. He does talk him into going out and paying money for a trick rather than relying on his own magical abilities. And use the two smallest coins in the English. (laughs) 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 There there is one funny thing where you've got the expert eye reader, you know, a lip reader, uh, Nazi and the dirty donkey across the street. (laughs) Banana shoeless. <laughs> and a dash of nutmeg. It's like, okay, this guy obviously doesn't know. He turns out. And then the payoff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I read it as he's reading exactly what he's saying, but it's hilarious because his friends think that he's full of it. There's a, there's a general trivia note. Note for young people and Americans. One shilling equals 5p. It helps to understand the antique finances of the Witchfinder army if you know the original British monetary system. Two farthings equals one halfpenny. 
Two halfpennies equals a penny. Three pennies equals a threepenny bit. Two threepence is a sixpence. Two sixpences is one shilling or a bob. Two bob is a florin. One florin and one sixpence is half a crown. Four half crowns is a ten bob note. Two ten bob notes is one pound or 240 pennies. One pound and one shilling is one guinea. The British resisted decimalization currency for a long... Decimalized currency for a long time because they thought it was too complicated. (laughs) (laughs) I thought... That was worth reading out because that is more ridiculous than anything that has come up in the fictional part of this story. Yeah. So the definition of this money was written by Terry Pratchett. Right. <laughs> I'm really glad I was born after decimalization had happened with currency. Right. <laughs> or at least I was not aware of money until afterwards. I can't remember exactly. I think we changed over like 1970-ish. We still had a lot of... Coins, like pre-decimalized coins around. So I had to know that a two-shilling coin was worth 10p, for example. Going to keep a reference book in your pocket along with the coins. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. So next we get to the scene in the music shop. There's this... Very embarrassing scene where Zerfell is talking about his natural dexterity while he's knocking things all over the floor. (laughs) Mr. Glozier comes in... um, Starts putting on disguises, I guess, because he's trying to remain <laughs> to make himself look less zombie-like. I am a normal human customer. <laughs> no, I I did love though as Airfail when he's doing the rings, he's doing it correctly. On accident. Yes. He's disconnecting them and reconnecting them all. That dexterity to do that, my compliments to him to have done that so beautifully. <laughs> it just so happens that he sends everything flying every time he does. Really, that could have been his act. Yeah. <laughs> there are yeah. people no. who make their living doing bad magic well, which is... <laughs> yes. The amazing Jonathan well. comes to mind. It also turns out that... Um, so they, they go through this whole thing where he decides he wants to buy the um, the bullet catch trick. And the shopkeeper's trying to talk him out of it and says, you have to have a firearms license. He says, oh, yes, I've had one of those for years. And Crowley's like, what? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming that, like, Azurafel just gets licensed in everything that it is possible to be licensed for. Because by right. having a license, it's a good thing to do. And it right? makes you official. Now, if you need to, you're not breaking any rules because you already have the license. Yes. I, exactly. I read it differently. I, I read it as a book with a Derringer in it is a type of book, and he had to have every type of book possible. So this was a necessity <laughs> to get the get the licensure so that he could have the book with a Derringer in it. Legally. Legally. I figured this was part of his, like, I'm a double agent little thing, so I better get a gun, and then I'll hide it in the bookshop just in case I need it. And it's just part of his little... He's play-acting a spy. Yep. I still love the concept that Azarafale has handled firearms and Crowley hasn't. Yep. <laughs> At yeah. this point, of the two of like, them, kind of surprising that Azarafale's the one who's been practiced I, I and licensed. Don't forget, Azarafale is the soldier yep. of the yep. two of true, them. True, true. Yep. Um, um, the reason that I took it as like part of the licensing was because it lines up with him having got a driver's license. And having mm-hmm. got tested for it, even though you didn't have to get tested for it. Right. Mm. I made you know, them test. He'd never driven a car since, but he got a license <laughs> as soon as it was possible. 
So part of Xerophil's whole rules lawyering thing is that he goes out and finds rules <laughs> so yeah. that he can then do. <laughs> they just the humans have come up with a rule where you have to have a license to drive a car. So I'm going to go out and get the license. We're we going to yep. find somebody with a husbandry license out here. Uh, um, I'm right here. <laughs> Must uh, make it terrible for him in modern days where everything is a license. Yep. Or paints right up his alley. Yeah. <laughs> um. He's got a collection. He's got a room that's just full of nothing but licenses. I want to know more about this gun. I want to know if this is going to be Chekhov's gun. If it's mm. going to come out later. It's been in the shop this whole that's, time. That's a good call. Yeah. And will Jim find it? Yeah. Jim's been categorizing books. Yeah. By their Ooh. first So <laughs> first what, is that, what is the first she letter of the first the sentence book. in Derringer? Hole <laughs> <laughs> in the book. This, this, this goes into D. <laughs> and what the title of that particular book is going to be. Jane Austen. Uh, <laughs> Pride and extreme prejudice. <laughs> So one of the other things I thought was funny about this scene is that Crowley pulls an extra 20 pounds out of his wallet to give to the shopkeeper to convince him that he needs to sell him this mm-hmm. trick. And it's like, Crowley is always spending Aziraphale's money. Yep. Because Crowley clearly actually knows how money works in this world. And we've already established that Aziraphale has either no, no clue or no desire to follow it. Mm-hmm. As the guy in charge of temptation, he knows how to motivate people to do things that they think are against, you know, like the shopkeeper is saying, I won't do it because it's not worth it to me if you go out and kill yourself. And Crowley's like, I know how to convince you. Mm -hmm. 20 pounds. Who would he sell it to? Because he keeps it in the case. That was what I was like. Wait a minute. Probably someone who didn't go in and start dropping his tricks all over the floor. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Possibly, you know, like a reputable famous magician who, ha- you know, who has done tricks and stuff. The Hoff. There you go. I guess it could be just for display purposes, too. Like, he kind of keeps it as a, a memento of previous dangerous tricks, but... <laughs> I love the fact that Azeraphale has the energy of that little old woman with the coin purse in front of you at the supermarket who is counting out exact change. There's like, a nickel. This one and oh, this nope, one. That's a button. There's a button. <laughs> so I had to watch it a couple of times to figure out what was going on with Mr. Glozier when he's grabbing all the the disguise items he also picks up trick ring mm-hmm. so when you see Azirfal and Crowley shaking hands he goes to turn the ring to call Furfur to the scene and turns the wrong one and manages to spray himself with ink very sketch comedy yeah yeah that was that was Chekhov's ring because the minute he put that on and it looked extremely like the other ring I'm like oh <laughs> that's going to happen that's going to be a problem <laughs> So there's an extended um, cut of the uh, of of Glozier, um on Roku, at least it's in a, the X-ray. It's yeah. in the it's in the X-ray on on Amazon and everything. Yeah, it's yeah. it's there. There's a uh, there's an extra that's a view of the rope trick, the magic trick, from the point of view of the shopkeeper. So from the point of view of the, of, of the magician, so you can see what's going on. Uh, broken the first rule of magic, but then. You've also got uh, an extended scene of a zombie Nazi 
uh, stumbling yeah. around a magic shop. That that probably was a blast to film. Oh yeah, <laughs> like just here, go here's a hundred props. Go find mm-hmm. things to do. <laughs> and, and, very much, and that very much fits in with it being a League of Gentlemen piece. Because mm-hmm. that was very much the the series is very much like um, bizarre surrealist sketch comedy. Yep. Um, Which is how you wound up with you know a, a Nazi zombie wearing a cowboy hat, uh, wax lips, and grouchy glasses. Yeah. Yes. The other thing I was I was um, thinking about when we first went to the magic shop is this is the middle of the blitz. Like all of the shops are closed. Everything is is uh in wrecks and shambles in in london and you've got this magic shop that's like in perfect condition he's still running it it's like what the crap that is not even a thing so you didn't get that badly blitzed in the blitz like large chunks didn't get hit um and mostly it was the east end that got hit because east end is closer to, to to the channel um, and so if they're in Western London, which is also the richer bit, it's, it's actually quite reasonable that, that, uh, it didn't get bombed. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Probably it's the same neighborhood where, uh, where Zerfil is. So he's sort of, you know, kind of yeah. protecting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other I've thing also... I was wondering is who's buying magic tricks when you can't find food and uh, well, with... anything so else, the... but. Well, but again, like it's a different, like you. Food was rationed. It was controlled because there was a limited supply. Um, sure. But things like, I mean, if it, you, you did have some degree of not everything, like Britain had not turned into a 100% war economy. So things were still being produced. And there was a, a, a no, an awareness of the fact that people needed to be entertained to keep morale up. That's mm-hmm. fair. Right. And so, yeah. So like music hall and theater stayed open. Movies you know, are this still is, being made. Again, Music at, was still being made. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, I mean, movies were really important. Next scene, um, we go back to the theater. The zombies go shuffling in the back row and hide behind the seats. And um, Azirfo comes on stage and he actually seems to experience some stage fright. He gets very hesitant now that he's actually got an audience in front of him. Uh, Mrs. Henderson's in the wings yelling at him to get his get ass moving. <laughs> get on with it. Get on. Get on with it. Again, theater managers. Eh. He figures out his magic's not working because he says, I always start with a little miracle just to get the crowd warmed up. And it doesn't work. Yep, the Turning a pumpkin a into an inkwell. Turnip. A turnip into, into an inkwell. Tu- inkwell, yes. Which is kind of an odd um, combo in itself. So both of them figure out that their miracles aren't working, and then you see Crowley grab the book and open it up and go, shit, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) (laughs) I better actually read this now. RTFM, read the fine manual. (laughs) So Crowley steps outside to get the gun, and uh, they shake hands while Zerfell is handing him the gun. And Furfur takes their photograph. This is going to be his evidence later. So this is when we find out that Crowley's never actually fired a gun before. And Zerfell says, you've never done this? He's like, well, not as such. (laughs) (laughs) Which is Crowley's speak for no. Yeah. (laughs) Because he's he's done this a couple of times now. Zerfell will ask him a question. He'll say, "Eh, not as such. Not as such. I'm kind of curious as to why they actually go through with it. They could bail. I mean, Crowley is never working for Mrs. Henderson again if they do, but they could bail. True. 
Azurafel has committed, so for him to bail would be, you know, like that would be ungood. That would be bad to renege on a commitment. And for Crowley, he's not going to back down to Azurafel, right? And to a certain extent, there is, you know, I mean, there's, he's got demonic pride. I think there's also curiosity of how this is going to turn. Let's find out where this goes. Okay, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm on the good end of the gun. So uh... I think like, you know, Crowley's expression. He looks horrified by this whole thing. His hands are shaking. Oh, mm-hmm. the camera's shaking. Everything is shaking. Just to really heighten the tension. Yeah, that, that's the bombs coming down. That's it. Not the camera. <laughs> <laughs> and Azurfell looks genuinely scared. I think it goes along with like this showing off thing that I mentioned earlier. That, like, they both want to show off for each other because they care about the other one and they want to, like, show off a little bit. So Crowley barely misses shooting Mrs. Henderson. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who takes it all in stride. Yeah, and does not react to the bullet hole next to her. Like, she's been shot at before. Why not use not, a blank? Not her first rodeo. <laughs> yeah. So she is based on the uh, the or ha- has the same name and characteristics of the owner of the windmill theater where it's set. Whether she was actually shot at by a demon um, firing an angel, I don't know. <laughs> but right there on screen. The general um, <laughs> approach to running a theater is 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 legit. So the next scene takes place in the dressing room. Aziraphale does this delightful little dance with a feather boa. He's <laughs> so happy. That's the, you know, the part where Furfer was so easily able to identify him as an angel. Um, <laughs> so what I want to know is, how come Furfer just, like, willingly hands over the only piece of evidence he has to them? Furfer's not very bright. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's showing off. To his yeah. credit, though... He does not just identify that Azarephale is an angel. He knows which one. Mm-hmm. He can't pronounce it, but that doesn't yeah. mean he knows that this one is that one. Like, he's put together which angel it is and just can't pronounce well, it. Well, he's got the book. Well, he has now that I, book. Now that I think about it, it's um, very possible <laughs> that the whole concept that Crowley is friends with this specific angel is why he knows that it's a gay angel is because Xerophel has also been associated with being gay. And so it's not that he's an angel, it's he's this specific <laughs> angel. They hadn't changed their demon book profile yet. There's a there's a some pitch in the bonus material. There's some close up pictures of this book, the Demon's Guide to Angelic Beings Who Walk the Earth. It must be a short book. Get <laughs> <laughs> the impression that they uh, check out the bodies very often. I'm guessing at this point Muriel is not in it. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> She's in the next edition. Well, that's actually there's an actually an interesting point. So like, it's not a big book, but if it has everyone who's ever been on Earth, then Gabriel, Uriel, Michael, they're all there because they've, they've at least visited Earth at least once. Yep. Mm-hmm. Hanging out with Masons, getting his, <laughs> getting his, uh, his statue carved. Made. Getting yeah. chiseled. Yes. <laughs> He's got the uh, bullet catch trick, which he uh, covered in blood, <laughs> which is then his introduction to bring in the zombies. 
I find it interesting that the shopkeeper had multiples of that book lying around. <laughs> he had multiples yeah. of that trick more, lying around. Just carry a bunch of, uh, of rifles in the shop to do the bullet catch trick with. <laughs> <laughs> Magic shop, gun shop. Ah, same difference. Yeah, maybe it has a back room where uh, people can get the illicit material. Fireworks, <laughs> firearms. Am I the only one who finds Mr. Harmony's giggle really, really disturbing? <laughs> no, you're yes. not. not the only one. You're like, not the only one. I know one. there's people in the Nazi party who used the argument that they were just doing their job. He actually enjoys what he does. Mm-hmm. He has this very yeah. high-pitched giggle that, you know, whenever he does something particularly nasty... We didn't go into specifics on it, but them eating the brains of the first guy and then the little song that you get afterwards, like, Mm -hmm. they have not changed. They liked it before they died. Now they're like, hey, we've got a reason to do this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wasn't so bad. They're Nazis. I think it's making it nice and clear. Yeah, these guys are Nazis. Yes. They have proper Nazis and and deserve to be, you know, thought of as such. No such thing as a good Nazi. Mm Mm-hmm. I think this this scene really emphasizes, like, somebody said that Furfur is showing off, he's trying to be impressive, and this, this scene really emphasizes it. First with the whole, somebody very high level has barred all miracles for the next hour, and Curly's like, who? Me! <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I have a pass. <laughs> and then he's, like, trying to get Curly to remember him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was right next to you! No, 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 don't remember you. Remember being there, I don't remember you. I think that uh, proves Crawley's like PTSD from the war in the fall that we had I talked think, about in, in previous episodes. I think I think Crowley found the first hiding spot he could and <laughs> yeah, just yeah, yeah. waited it yeah. out. Like he is he is not a fighter. Not my scene. Yeah. Not as such. <laughs> He's very good at bluffing though. He's obviously very worried by this picture. You see him kind of take this very deep swallow when he sees it, mm-hmm. but he kind of plays off that he's not worried and he like lies back on the couch and puts his hat over his head and said, I'm not going with you. This is ridiculous. This isn't going anywhere. Well, in, in the last episode, it shows that he gets like severely reprimanded for his actions. So this is fairly this is after that soon yeah. after that. So yeah. I think he might right. be a little bit frightened of hell and the possibilities of hell right at this point. <laughs> but it's also probably dangerous to show that fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you never show weakness. Yeah, so it's like kind of a halfway in between feeling. Right. And you do actually see, sort of see, Aziraphale hide the picture. Mm-hmm. Like he puts his hand out, pulls it back, and then puts it out again. Mm-hmm. So there's like this little a flick of the wrist that yeah, happens. Yeah, he does a flourish. I completely missed that the first time through. Mm-hmm. I figured he had done it, but I didn't actually see him do it. I went back and watched it again and said, oh, there it is. There's the moment where he swaps out the picture. Which is exactly how stage magic is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Misdirection. Misdirection. And for, for so big of himself, he's not paying attention anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> he Absolutely. probably could have just like out and out done a switch right in front of him. He wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> yes, but also after that magic show, I don't think anybody's worried that Azaraphale was going to pull off anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think mostly, like, Furfur wouldn't have even thought about it because he's been in hell. Like, he's a receptionist in hell, right? He he has no experience of the world. He's even worse than most of the angels and demons that have shown up before, who have no fucking clue about anything in the real world. Yeah, you have a better chance of the Nazi zombies noticing than, than him. Yeah. 
So we get the scene where Furfur goes to hell, gets his audience in front of the Dark Council, and apparently did not actually check his evidence before showing it to them. Uh, that's what you get for putting it into a envelope brightly labeled <laughs> evidence and sealing right. it off and so showing no it to Crowley. It. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It's like the um, bad guy uh, giving their entire monologue to uh, 007 right before they're going to kill him. Here's our, my entire plan and how you unravel it. And yeah. Yep. I also wonder if there was an overconfidence that came from having the blackout card for magic. Yeah. No miracles can go on right now. So what I know the two of you can do, you can't do right now. Yeah. I don't have to worry because all of your magic's blocked right now. Yeah, right. like uh, underestimating what Crowley and uh, Zero Fail are capable of. They underestimated the Hoff is what happened. You never <laughs> underestimate never the Hoff. do that. <laughs> That's just a bad, bad idea. Who needs a miracle when you've had private lessons from the great Professor Hoffman himself? Mm-hmm. I like the fact in this scene that Shax is watching to see what happens. And when he looks over at her, she just kind of smiles and shrugs like... Well, she blew didn't it. sabotage yeah. her She did not. He totally nope. did that on his own. It's almost like she was expecting it to go that way. I think she knows he's not very bright. She's been working <laughs> with the guy for a long time. But it also gave her a chance to see what the punishment would be for being wrong. So she now has a better chance of if when she makes her move, she understands what the negative is plus what the positive is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was her guinea pig. Let's throw him to the wolves, see what they do with them. Mm-hmm. And then I'll know how to plan out my approach. I kind of got the vibe that she was like planning for him to fail all along so that when she did it, it would be even more impressive. Yep. But if she, but if he succeeded again, like we talked about before, that would mean she now has somebody who owes her a favor in the upper ranks. So it was, it was a win win situation yeah. for Shax. Yeah. So Shax is, is turning out to be a more formidable opponent, I think, than we had first thought when she first She knows appeared. manipulation, but not how to operate a boiler. Uh, boilers are new. Yeah, <laughs> if I moved to England and had I, to operate a boiler, I wouldn't well, how know water what to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Between the the car ride and and this manipulation, it's obvious that she has a very calculated mind. I feel like there's a movie uh, with Carrie Ellis called Pentagon Wars, and one of the aspects of it is that he gets at the people with, with paper cuts, tiny paper cuts, by doing the everything legitimately by the process to undermine the people who are trying to screw things over. Malicious compliance. Yep. And she seems like that. She'll know the rule. She'll know exactly how it processes, and she's figuring out how to manipulate those rules to be what she needs. Which, which it actually does feed into Madeline's theory about um, her tracking as autistic, because that's being very calculated is an autistic brain trait, and also kind of focusing in on one track. Interesting. Um, so yeah. did we, did we talk about um, what happens to the zombies after they have delivered? Uh, <laughs> They're released I... from, from hell's service. Off you go now. They get to walk, walk the, the earth, earth for eternity zombies. as zombies. With bits and pieces falling off. Like, what happens if you have eternal life, but your body is decaying? What happens to you when the, you basically are. Decay sets in. Are you a walking skeleton? I figure at some point they will die again, and then they will go to hell, 
and then they will go to hell for all of the the sins they committed as zombies all of the killing people and eating their brains as if being nazis wasn't enough they haven't got off the hook from eternity like they've just had you know of an infinite time they have a finite amount less but of they it. don't have to go back to hell they could be ghosts Wait. they're at some point they're, they're not going to have bodies anymore but they are not obligated to go back to hell they've been released from hell so maybe that's where like ghosts and shit come from i like the idea that there's a worse punishment for the zombies that have sinned. So it was like, oh, you're going to be eaten by this spider for eternity. Okay, the zombies are back. Now there's these three spiders that are going to each eat you, and they're going to poop you out. And then you go into a blender, and like it's a way worse punishment for the rest of eternity because they went back as zombies. That, that's kind of like my take on it. Like they, they haven't been let off in perpetuity. They've just got a bit of a break. It feels good, and it's going to come back... To- and be worse later because hell always does the worst thing possible. Do sins that you commit after you're dead even count? <laughs> I, Ask a zombie. I, I would say that since they have agency, they can choose not to do it. They could because they need to eat brains to su- to survive, right? So if they don't eat brains, they will die. Which means they are not redeemable. Which was, was going to be my next question, but then I'm like, but then you brought up the brain. I'm like, there's no way they could possibly. Yeah, they are totally redeemable. redeemable. Yeah, they they are to, just like any any human is. They go to, you know, Axel, they they, they Axel, apologize to God. Axel, mm-hmm. they're Nazis. Yes, they're Nazis. <laughs> so they're not going to. What are you be- saying? They're redeemable. <laughs> no, zombies are redeemable. Nazi zombies are not. But zombies are redeemable. Well, I mean, like again, the Christian tenet is that everybody is redeemable all you have to do is say sorry to god i won't i did that was a bad thing i did i won't do it again right and so they just boom. need to get get an audience with god and apologize between meals they right. just i yeah i mean i don't know how it <laughs> they, they pray at the right time but yeah they, they apologize they stop eating brains they could end up in heaven but they're not going to because they're nazis they're and they're nazis dumb. yeah <laughs> We've lost Shabbat on completely. the production. <laughs> <laughs> on the production side of things, though, I was impressed when the arm fell off. He picked up the arm, and then the arm pointed the way out right. the door. I haven't had a chance to do a mm-hmm. second watch of this episode, but I want to look back at that with how the articulation is done. Is that going to be a post-production? Uh, CGI effect? Was there some sort of sleight of hand puppetry kind of thing weird going on? I, I'm going to be watching that yeah. scene again because I want to see how it's done. His arm fall cool. off a couple again. of times. There's been yeah, but that last one when they're leaving, the one the other guy picks up his arm and says, "Yeah, let's go." And the arm, as he points with the arm, the hand on the end of the arm yeah. points. It's articulating yep. still. So he still has control of it, even if he's not a, if it's not attached. So in theory, there could be bits and pieces of zombies wandering around at this point. <laughs> uh, now we know where thing came from. Oh. <laughs> hey, thing, where were you between ni- 1933 and 1945? Oh no, we can't do that because I don't want I don't want thing to turn out to have been a Nazi. <laughs> I'm not okay with that. I'm, I'm scratching that cannon. No, no, no. It's another zombie. It is not one of these three. It was a non-Nazi See, zombie. See, Big Zombie already apologized to God, but the hand was left. There you go. So so do, is the entire zombie um, redeemed if only part of him apologizes to God? No. <laughs> that 
particular hand. You can't debunk my theory. That particular hand had refused to break open the skull of the brains that they ate. So that particular hand is actually not yet committed ah, to sin. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So back to good omens. <laughs> <laughs> So in the next scene, we go back to the bookshop. Crowley and Azurfell are sharing a drink. Crowley tells him he's really bad at magic. He does so much more gently (laughs) than he does the scene in season one where he's like, oh, God, no, please don't do your magic tricks. It's embarrassing. (laughs) And they have that little Shades of Grey conversation, Mm -hmm. which has always been a part of the story. This is the first time they've ever actually laid it out in text, said, you know, you have to learn about Shades of gray. Well, light gray. Lighter gray, darker gray. <laughs> darker gray. Darker gray. Darker gray. Well, lighter gray. They all meet in the middle. So they're friends again. So then we get to the scene um, with Shax in hell, stomping her way through the corridors of hell, headed to speak present, to... Present day, you know, meaning this is the end of the 33-minute minisode. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's part of the credit. The Minnesota is the series this year, Craig. <laughs> That's true. True. <laughs> Pretty much. I want to talk about how she's walking because everybody talks about how Crowley walks. He does not walk like a human. If you watch Azurafel for any length of time, he doesn't really walk like a human either. Like he doesn't move his pelvis at all, just his legs. Mm-hmm. Shax also does not walk like a human. Like the whole meat suit thing that all three actors are very good at moving in a way that is just a little bit alien mm-hmm. to show off the fact that they're not really human. And I, I just think it's interesting that these three are so good at that. Yep. Yeah, she almost doesn't bounce when she walks. She just kind mm-hmm. of like moves three, forward. Three short, clippy yeah. little steps that, yeah, her, the rest of her body does not move at all. Oh, I mean, you can throw John Hamm in there, too. In episode one, where he's walking naked through the streets of London with a box, he's very... You it know. just kind of sidles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He walks like an NPC. Yeah. yeah there, there's almost no knees to his walk. True. It's all leg. <laughs> yep. I, don't re- I don't recognize there's a joint below the leg. It's kind of penguin Yes. Yep. So um, Shax has that little face-off with uh, Beelzebub's, I don't know what he is, assistant bouncer. or whatever. Major Domo. It's very much like a bouncer at a club door. Butler. You're not on the list. <laughs> She scares him. He backs off. Um, I'd be scared of Shax if she mm-hmm. <laughs> wanted something on the other side of me, so I can't 100% blame him. It's kind of interesting that she's not on the list, because it seems like she would be the kind of person to actually do the paperwork to make sure that she was on Beelzebub's um, agenda list. And also, she's if she's the primary Earth representative, you would think that given that they are looking for Gabriel on Earth, that she would be the primary person that Beelzebub would want to speak to at any given time. An open door policy yeah. kind of thing. But as we know, it's hell. Yeah. <laughs> so the list is probably wrong, or maybe the list is in fact blank. So nobody's ever on the list. And if you can't <laughs> pull your way in, then you're not worthy to go in. Fair, right. That would be fair. The other thing I would think is that there's some other lower demon that's kind of manipulating the the scales and and taking shacks off the list i don't know well, why that, that would be or where that would lead hell, but yeah. is it is it furfur, furfur. that's still furfur is responsible yeah. for the list is it furfur that's still in PR? you think he got demoted <laughs> demoted to the list. Just list maker given that it is hell and we've seen how hell keeps their files it's 
the the current list, the updated list, is in a box or a folder somewhere that's just like in a pile in a hallway. Right. Yeah, I, I could buy axles like even if they had like a view of whatever the major domo just looking at the clipboard and there's nothing on it and then saying nope, nope, you're not on the list. And any adjustments to the list go to an email account that nobody looks at. There's no email in hell. They use file boxes. <laughs> We've seen well, that. No, goes, no, but there's an email address. The... There's an email address. It just doesn't actually reach out. Well, you can even see when you go into Be- Beelzebub's office, like she's surrounded by stacks and stacks of paper, mm-hmm. like it, tied together with elastic bands. The list is in there somewhere. Yeah. It goes on to the demon book account that nobody remembers the password to. <laughs> <laughs> no, in this case, the in this case, the demon software is Outlook. So, yeah. The guy, no, the guy who had the password got put in a bathtub full of holy water. <laughs> there Oops. you go. That's what happens. Shouldn't mess with the usher. Meets with his name, right? He's the keeper of hell's passwords. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one last thing on that scene. Anybody notice what Beelzebub said to her? Good job. Thank you. No, yeah, good, good job. Work. Thank you, Shax. Ah. Which, in the previous episode, we had the whole thing of... What would you, how would, do you want somebody, how would you feel if somebody said good job to you? And now Beelzebub's using that What phrase. is going on with Beelzebub? That is not like her. I'm wondering if it's a conversation we haven't been privy to that Beelzebub's been listening in on or something, but something is absolutely affecting that whole concept. I did like the change of, I command you to do it. I'm not, I'm not authorizing you. I'm commanding you. That was, that was beautiful as, as you were mentioned. I think Dave, you just mentioned, um, but yeah. I, I just I noted that especially with the last conversation, she actually told her good job. Kind of proves that Beelzebub is like keeping tabs on everything going in hell. Even even the admissions office, is, they're paying attention. <laughs> I guess there's a reason she's in charge. Yeah, and I also wanted to note that they're um, using they them pronouns with Beelzebub very carefully in the mm-hmm. in the series. Mm-hmm. I noticed that. Yeah, I did too. So they yeah. told her. So here's so here's a question. Do you think that Beelzebub is sending Shax to attack the bookstore because they think it will work or because they want to see what happens? I'm thinking back to way, the way Shax sent Furfur to try and trap Crowley. Is Beelzebub doing the same thing to Shax and saying, hey, you, you're going to be my guinea pig. You're going to go out there commanding legions of hell. And That's the impression I got. And I almost thought maybe because um, Beelzebub asks Shax, could you get past the door? So it was almost like Beelzebub was giving Shax the opportunity to back out, to rethink the plan. Mm-hmm. But Beelzebub didn't care one way or the other. If if Shax was going to go forward with it, okay, we'll see what happens. But I want to see if Shax is smart enough to realize that this isn't going to work. Once again, I'll give you more and more rope. Let's see what you do with it. Mm-hmm. I think that it might not even be about Gabriel at all at this point. Just vengeance on Crowley for being the way Crowley is. That he goes with hell as far as he can. So I think that maybe it might just be... Honestly, just trying to annoy Crowley because of what Crowley has done in the past. I think getting rid of Crowley would be a nice fringe benefit because Crowley openly defied hell and got away with it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that Crowley's even really a part of it because Crowley may or may not be in the bookshop. I don't know that. I think Beelzebub is with it enough to realize that Crowley's not staying and living in the bookshop. It just happens to be there at that moment. Oh, a, a lot of the time. Yeah. 
But Beelzebub does know that Crowley is friends with Aziraphale and that Aziraphale lives in the bookshop. Because even though they might not have proof, I think that Beelzebub knows that that's a thing. So that's an interesting point because we know that Shax has been using their relationship to get at Crowley by threatening Aziraphale. So it's possible that Beelzebub knows the same thing and this is a way to get at Crowley or find out what's going on with Gabriel because they know that attacking Aziraphale, who's the more innocent of the two and the easier one to attack, is a weakness that Crowley has. Yeah, they're exploiting weaknesses. I think Aziraphale, in terms of physical attack, is not the weaker of the two. Probably not. No, it's that projected strength. Yeah. Yeah. I think that attacking the bookshop isn't a physical attack towards Aziraphale because of how much the bookshop means to him. I think that is an emotional attack. Hmm, good point. That's true. And definitely an emotional attack on Crowley. And, and does and does Hell know that at this point, that they've figured out that Crowley and Aziraphale are both very attached to their earthly items and that that might actually hurt them. And that may also be why Crowley was kicked out of his apartment, is they figured that was an earthly attachment. We're going to give it to your replacement as the ultimate like spit in your face. Like I don't get the sense that the demons own just that one apartment, and that's the only only spot in the world where a demon can reside that is the the earth uh, no but it is rent representative control, you don't want to let that go <laughs> especially not you're in gonna london. keep that in Try the family that keeps passing down i think if they wanted to attack Crowley emotionally they would go after his plants and his bentley Ooh, that's just mean you can't go after the bentley I loved that the Bentley tried to follow a Zerfell. This, this, yeah. this theory that the Bentley is a character <laughs> in the okay. show is so cute. More more. Obviously, the Bentley is just as attached to a Zerfell as it is to Crowley, and I wonder if maybe it's because Crowley treats the Bentley a little bit like he treats his plants. Yeah. There's a bit of a, a hate relationship there, and the the Bentley enjoyed uh, being mm-hmm. free of its master for a minute. I don't agree. I, did you see the way that um, Crowley talked to the Bentley when he was putting the plants back in? He's like, <laughs> did you miss me? <laughs> All yeah. of his affection goes to the Bentley. With how long the Bentley's been with Crowley, I think that the Bentley has picked up on some of Crowley's emotions. Could be, yeah. And that's why it's attached to his ear. Oh, I Because Crowley is. Yeah, I think that's a good theory. I like it. Well, why else would it be willing to turn yellow for him? Yeah. And also, I don't know if you noticed when he pats the top of the Bentley, it kind of makes this little noise, like it purrs. <laughs> it does the same thing when Crowley is putting his plants in. It makes that same purring noise. Oh, the Bentley has two daddies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> obviously been driving all night uh, to get home. It's very early in the morning. Nina shows up to open up the coffee shop and gets a text from Lindsay. This is the only time that Nina really appears <sighs> in this, and it's to get yet another text. And I slowed it down and read what the text said. If you had any self-respect, you would not have left this morning. I had a lot more to say. I cannot believe how self-centered you are. Yeah. Uh, like how dare how dare you go to work? <laughs> how dare you not do everything that I want to all the time? This is this is some horribly manipulative. Yep. You're so self-centered. You won't do what mm-hmm. I want to do all the time. Yeah, and she's framing it as not having any self-respect. Yep. That you are not staying. Yep. And I also get the vibe of like I had a lot more to say. Wasn't 
you got to say your part and you didn't let me say mine. It was, I, I started talking, I was still talking, you don't get a chance to right. talk, I had more to say. I, I wasn't finished yelling at you, and, ugh, yep. belittling you and gaslighting you, and et cetera. I love that they're shining a light on the emotional abusive relationship. Yes. That we have not we have yeah. not seen Nina come in with the black eye like DW had mentioned in the, the first episode. That's not what we're getting here. But this is just as bad, if not worse, on an emotional level, which we see out there all the time. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't get shown in media as often. We always see that physical abuse in media. Yep. So I think that the relationship between Lindsay and um, Nina Nina is similar to the relationship between Crowley and Hell and Asirafel and Heaven. Is it's just they're constantly dragging at it, mm-hmm. and Nina is soon to find a friendship in the other girl. What's her name? Maggie. Maggie. It's like Maggie. gone from my mind. Maggie, just as Asirafel and yeah. Crowley ha- have become that place for each other yeah yeah that reminds me of something that i meant to mention uh about the last episode there's a very brief scene where they're actually talking to each other before crowley makes it rain and drives them under the awning nina is very much the crowley parallel Mm -hmm. um and one of the things that she does that he does is that she refers to people as their order so your skinny latte your six shots of espresso in a big cup Mm-hmm. Crowley does that with like Bit Girl, Book Girl, yep. Army Human. <laughs> <laughs> but in that scene where they're talking to each other right before Crowley starts making it rain, she actually calls her by name. Maggie's become a person. Mm-hmm. So I just found that like a little interesting transition in her in their relationship. Nice she's little. not. Skinny. She's not skinny latte anymore. Actual start of their relationship, not yeah. the uh, rain mm-hmm. under the awning. Yep. And and the the beautifully sad fact of her like well I'm not your type yeah and this the, with the response of you have no idea you you just don't have a clue so Curly comes running out to put his plants back in the Bentley and say oh you welcome home baby <laughs> <laughs> so so going back to the fact that Crowley obviously never told Azurafel the details about Shax. I'm kind of curious as to why Azurfeld does not tell Crowley that Shax met him on the road and that Shax maybe knows that Gabriel's in the bookstore. They're still not talking to each other a lot about what's going on with Hell, and I just find that a little weird. That seems like a pride thing. Like, I don't think he's very happy that he gave gave up information to Shax. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Or he could just be so happy to see Crowley that... uh... It just sort of slipped his mind. Wasn't very. But, wasn't but Crowley very important. actually asked him how it goes, and he says nothing weird happened. Yeah, that's true. And as that's soon true. as Zerfil says that, you know something mm-hmm. weird happened. Yeah. <laughs> they're in this relationship where they see each other all the time, and they spend time together, but they're not like trusting each other about what's going on in their own lives or or the world around them. <laughs> I was kind of wondering if it maybe it's a I messed up. It's my bookshop, therefore it's my problem, and Crowley's already got enough that he's dealing with, so I'm going to deal with my problem. I, that's my take. That, that would track, because he's kind of got this new individualism, this yep. new independence that he hasn't had before, true, true. even and, from and season one. Also, still, there's you know 6,000 years of habit of not necessarily telling each other everything. Yeah. It takes a long time to get over 
like 6,000 years. Yeah. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of into, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of guesswork, but you know, like I know how, how difficult it means to go with 20 years of bad habit. So you're extrapolating. <laughs> yeah, multiplying that yeah. by 300. Right. So I'm making a prediction for the next episode. Crowley says, oh yeah, my plan with the rain under the awning didn't work out. So uh, Azurfell's going to do his ball. Well, uh, he, he, he so much as says so at the end of this episode. So the it's next like I tried the I tried a, the Richard Curtis plan and it didn't work. So uh, next stop, you Jane know, the Austin. merchants uh, meeting. I can't wait for <laughs> yeah. the costuming. <laughs> What's Crowley's hair going to look like at a ball? Well, it's not a ball; it's a meeting. But you know, it's uh, a zero fail, so he probably doesn't know that there's supposed to be a difference. <laughs> Anything else about this episode? No, I would say look at the X-ray. There's there's a lot of very cool stuff they've been doing this season. Things like production art, all of the posters from Hell, and the uh, the poster for Azerfell's Magic Act. They did a period correct poster type thing that they would put on the on, on the stage on the easel. And there's examples of others that they use to uh, to come up with. If you're into like set design or prop design and things like that, art direction, very cool stuff hidden in, hidden in there. Uh, there's even a uh, a little short featurette that uh, has the actress who plays Muriel uh, walking through the uh, VFX and department for the show. Did you see the Hell Computer? I think I worked on that one at one point in the eighties. It reminded me of the computers from Brazil. Very much. Yeah, also excited to see how the rest of the intro feeds into the minisodes because it's pretty clear in those first three what's going on, but then after that, there's a lot of ambiguity as to what is going on in each one of those scenes in the entry. Well, I think this is the last of the uh, of the minisodes. Yes. The other two don't have the minisode feature uh, you know, featuring the minisode on the on the title. So I assume it's going to be plot from here on out. So basically, they did the cold open from season one, episode three, and split it up in three different episodes instead of doing it all, instead of having a half hour cold <laughs> I open. I think Neil uh, <laughs> right. took the fans' enjoyment of that and ran with it and said, we're going to make this part of this season and really build off of that stuff that we put in that cold open and, and show it off. Explore that evolution. So I think that's an episode. Greg, do you want to take us out? I will. We'd like to thank Michael and Jen at the Watch Party Secret Island headquarters. Thank you, Michael Michael and Jen. Jen. Thank you. You are responsible for this. Yes. They're also (laughs) responsible for our sister podcast, Watch Party Lord of the Rings, Watch Party Wheel of Time, and a Watch Party of Ice and Fire. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at gameandwatchparty at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at Game and Watch Party, and we're on Discord now. Our Discord is live. We're out there. Come see us. And now it's time for our final question. Okay, so you have been a very bad angel, and you have ended up working in hell. As we know, there are no good positions in hell, but where would you find yourself? What What part of hell is your own personal hell as a job? I would be forced to work on their leaky plumbing constantly. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think I'd be. No, I'd end thing- up IT. All the cables oh. that don't match the system that you have to hook them up to. Oh. My office has oh. no windows, and I'm in with the servers. And it's for some reason even warmer than the rest of hell. Yeah, how, how do you keep hell servers cool? They, they run on sitting, it. Sitting at an unorganized computer all day trying to find what I'm supposed to be working on. Oh. <laughs> their, their computer electronic filing system is in the same shape as their physical filing oh. system. <laughs> I would have to say in uh, working in HR in hell, that would just be that would just be awful. You know, there's nothing you could <laughs> the complaints would department. Be, yeah, <laughs> would it be dr? Yes, I made that. Yeah, I made that observation earlier. That would, that yeah. would definitely be demonic relations. I think I would have a role that had a lot of tight deadlines that I had to keep to. Oh. <laughs> exactly what it was. <laughs> the tight deadline you have is coming up with the deadlines for everything else, and you have to do this. Else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a oh, loop project of manager. Ooh. Project manager of hell. I'm actually going to give you the same answer I gave to one of my previous uh, questions. PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is hell. It wasn't actually a live view of the spider. That was a pre-prepared slideshow that you have to make. Yes! <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't nice animate. You have to keep going through those slides fast enough that you make it look like it's animated. Nice job on the pulsating anus, Siobhan. <laughs> Stop talking now, because, yeah, that's the end of it. That's the outline. Oh, yeah.